0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm your co-host, Kevin Gostola, and I'm joined by the show's other co-host, Rania Kaleck. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And this week, we're very pleased to have as our guest the National Coordinating Committee member of the United States Palestinian Community Network. His name is Hatem Abudaya. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And Hatem is based in Chicago. Uh, where I also am based. And uh, what we wanted to do is have you on uh, to—we wanted to get into some of what's been going on in the country. There's a lot of uh, groups that have been coming out into the streets and showing support for Palestinians and also, you know, protesting against the assault on Gaza. And so can you just uh, give our listeners uh, a bit of a glimpse at what it's been like on the ground here in Chicago?
1: Yeah, I I think that, you know, this has been an incredible response from the community. I mean, it's an expected response. I mean, there are a lot of um, impressive institutions in our community in this country, and especially in Chicago, which has always kind of been a hub for Palestine community activism. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, um, although, you know, there are strong organizers and institutions here it's really the the issue itself that brings people out. So, we've had four mass rallies already in Chicago, and a fifth um, that is being organized for Saturday. And the last one, last Sunday, brought 10,000 people into the streets. So, I was a co-emcee of that protest and and that rally, and and I announced many times over the course of that day that that 10,000 people was probably the largest. Uh, gathering of of Palestinians in one place to protest Israel and U.S. support for Israel, uh, maybe in the history of the community here. So it was a massive turnout, and there have been massive turnouts in in New York and in San Francisco and, and a number of other places around the country as well.
2: And um you know one thing that I've noticed it's like it seems like a trend across the country is you know from one city to the next there's there's there seems to be this um this almost like concerted coordinated effort to uh to smear these protesters as anti-semitic uh and a lot of times that requires fabricated. Uh, accusations. Uh, for example, I don't know if you you saw in L.A. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was actually uh, there was like a pro-Israel demonstration, uh, and uh, and this these uh, these Palestinians, uh, four of them I believe, were actually they ended up being arrested and shot at by Department of Homeland Security agents uh and the claim by the pro-israel protesters with that was that these these four palestinian men had brought sticks like came came into their rally with sticks and started attacking them um because you know they just like hate jews so much um and then it turned out like as more information surfaced that they just all they, they had the palestinian flags which were they were you know being accused of using as sticks um, and that they were the ones who were attacked and one of them was even kicked. And, and so we've seen this sort of this, this, like this effort to really, to smear, uh, Palestinians are solidarity activists. And so I'm wondering if any of that has taken place in Chicago.
1: Yeah, I think there's a interesting corollary to that story. Um, and although it's anecdotal and, and hearsay, there was a situation that we experienced, um, even before our counter protest of the of the zionist pro war rally in the big rally that i just described the 10,000 people last sunday um it was overheard of a police officer chicago police department officer was overheard being asked by you know just some person on the on the street what are these folks out here for and the cops said, they're out here because they hate Jews. Oh, God. So, um, you know, like I said, it's hearsay, but I heard it from a number of people. And, um, you know, I think there is, there is uh, you know, a, a little bit of that, that cloud, but it's not new. I mean, every, you know, we know that a lot of activists, prominent ones across the country, and our institutions have been accused of it you know and and the thing is is difference between being accused of it by you know the the marginal you know ultra right-wing bloggers the schlossels of the world and and another thing when you know when you hear it from officialdom you know you hear it from a from the consulate the israeli consulate in chicago um or you hear it from uh you know representatives of the jewish federation for example or the jewish united fund um you know obviously it's it's absolutely wrong and 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 uh and specious but uh on the other hand it, it means that you know we ha- we have to we have to uh we have to deal with it and we have to address it and and the way we've uh we've been addressing it especially in Chicago and especially very recently is that the the Chicago police has you know essentially taken sides uh <laughs> in our in our conflict in Chicago with the with the Zionists and the pro-Israeli crowd on on Tuesday afternoon, um, the consulate organized a pro-Israel rally. Mm-hmm. Um, we called for a counter-protest. Of course, our coalition for justice in Palestine that includes USPCN and a number of other institutions. And um, when when their rally wrapped up an hour later a number of the most rabid of them, you know, crossed the street to provoke and confront us. And so you would think that uh, since the police wouldn't let us get within a block of their rally, that once they started coming to try to confront and provoke us, that the police would jump in front of them and try to stop them. Instead, they they situated their 20 horses and there you know and their 30 um police officers in front of our uh in front of our rally hmm. so i actually was one of the people that was negotiating with the police commander on the ground there and i you know i got really really upset i went i went um you know i confronted him and i said this is ridiculous if we had stepped off of our street corner and tried to get anywhere near the pro-Israel rally, you all would have flipped. You would have started arresting people on the spot, but you just allowed them to come, you know, to challenge us and confront us and provoke us. Um, and he had no, he had absolutely no answer for that. So, um, you know, the, the things that you're describing and the things that, you know, we we see play out on the political side, you know, they play out on the municipal side as well in Chicago and other places.
2: Well, that's really interesting you mentioned that because i think you know it's not um uh in d c where you know where i'm located uh it's not quite as uh, the police aren't aren't quite a as um as a you know as like a sort of i guess uh on they're not on horseback <laughs> i guess they're not a, yeah. they're not such like an intense brutal presence the way they are in chicago but they do police protests and yeah that's something that is you know uh that i constantly notice is this sort of you know that they almost like walk around the israeli crowd like body like they almost act as bodyguards for uh for zionists even when they're coming to like our protests um right. And, you know, and and then, you know, if they, if if we're getting harassed, you know, if like the pro-Palestine side is getting harassed, it's like the police just sort of stand there and they, they just continue to, they act as protectors. It's almost as though they're trying to like block the, the, you know, the, the Israel supporters from like the Arab hordes. (laughs) That's how I see it. Right,
1: right. No, it's (laughs) absolutely that. And, and, and again, you know, in a, in a city like Chicago, especially when, you know, there's, there's this sorted history of racial profiling and police brutality and, and torture, um, you know, torture cases in Chicago that have made it all the way to the United Nations. Mm. Um, this is just, you know, another example of, you know, you know, the, the worst in, in racial profiling, like come and protect the white Europeans from, you know, the, as you just, (laughs) uh, as you just described it, the Arab hordes, you know, and it's the same as when, you know, they're, they're terror. The police in Chicago are terrorizing you know black communities like they have for for decades. So, um, you know, we're we're trying to make a we're trying to make um, you know some hay about it in in terms of like publishing the the story of that uh, of that protest and that rally and that counter protest. Um, you know, Kevin wrote an article, there's an article that just dropped in counterpunch by Chris Giovanni's a solidarity activist in Chicago, um, especially because one of the pro Israel supporters at that rally was carrying a concealed handgun. And he was arrested by the Chicago police. But the Chicago police did not put out a press release about the arrest. He got out on an I bond. I don't know if that's the same term that they use around the country, but an bond in Chicago means you get out without having to post any money for bond. Hmm. He was charged with a misdemeanor, whereas if, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, a handgun was found, you know, on a Palestinian in the Palestinian crowd, it would have been, you know, international news and, and, you know, the cries of terrorism would have been, would have been coming from probably the White House, even. So I mean, it's it's a really disgusting double standard, and it does it does speak a lot to you know white supremacy and and you know the racial profiling that that is uh, historical in Chicago.
2: That's really you know just just to throw this out there as well. I mean, back at that L. A. at that L. A. rally where those four Palestinian men were arrested, I believe they all faced uh, they all faced felony charges for attempted assault with a deadly weapon. The deadly weapon being. The um, the, the flag. yeah, the, the pole, the, the <laughs> flagpole, like so. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, right. you know, compare that to an actual concealed handgun, and, and it's just like right. a cartoon. It's, it's, it's
0: a cartoon. Well, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, let, let's stay on this guy for just a moment because there's a couple things to to point out the the the, the clear double standard, and and I'm sure you'll have a reaction them to to this. But this individual is not just you know your average Joe. I mean, he's the president of this major real estate firm here in Chicago. He's selling really high, high-end condo hotel units at the Trump International Tower. Um, he, he sold Derek Rose um, on the Chicago Bulls, his bachelor pad on the 84th floor. And he, um, you know, he, he, he used his company. I don't know if it was him, but his company actually was trolling uh, singer and mu- musician Selena Gomez for sending out a, a Pray for Gaza tweet. Um, and he harassed, uh, this, his company harassed her and said, by you supporting Hamas, you are supporting worldwide terrorism. Um, and then on his Facebook page, and I think this is really interesting, on on his Facebook page, I took a screenshot of, of what he put on the, the Stand With Us Chicago Community Chapters page. He wrote, Our side much, must have videos of Hamas encouraging human shields or of them using U.N. ambulances for transport of armed militants. We also must be able to protect ourselves because the police... And many other North American cities are not protecting the few Jews that are peacefully protesting against the terror of the typically much larger Arab crowds. Let's not allow for the Jews to keep getting pushed around. Now, um, just based on what I know about how Palestinians have been prosecuted, um, there's enough there that I think a prosecutor here in Illinois could charge him with conspiracy to commit assault. I'm not saying that I support that. But it's a clear double standard that you know nobody's going through his pages right now and accusing him of plotting some kind of a criminal act
1: yeah no absolutely I mean obviously this is the first I'm hearing of of that and you know i'm I'm not a you know I'm probably the you know one of the one of the few people in the world who doesn't have Facebook so i i, I wasn't on his page or anything but um but yeah i mean that's it's it's clear that um that that's not that's, it's not true that you know the the pro-Israel supporters are in any kind of of, of danger. Um, it's absolutely not true. In fact, it's pro- the problem. the The opposite is probably true. The the opposite is that you know we're the ones who are being threatened by the pro-Israel supporters, like they did on Tuesday, um, coming to try to be provocative. Um, and and coming uh, to to challenge and and face off with our crowd, um, and you know there's a there's a history, again a very sordid history in in Chicago, especially but around the country of of Palestinians and their institutions, you know coming coming under fire from. The, the government and and being repressed you know organizations that have been shut down since september 11th humanitarian aid organizations uh people who have who have uh you know been been uh, subpoenaed to to grand juries to talk about their palestine activism and their delegations to palestine i mean you know it's it's uh it's an absolute falsehood and it's actually ridiculous to say that uh you know american jews are are under some kind of uh, uh some kind of attack
0: well, I mean, can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your backstory? I mean, you, you've been a target, and, and whatever you're comfortable with sharing, I think it would be great for people to know that uh, that you're going out into the streets and, and organizing when you are under this cloud of investigation from the Justice Department.
1: Yeah, I'm comfortable with sharing all of it. I mean, in, in September twenty September fourth, 2010, coming up on four years— uh, four years ago, I was. Um, my home was was raided by the by the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force, along with another home in Chicago of uh, Palestinian solidarity activist couple, and five other homes and an office in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, we were subpoenaed to a federal grand jury. The investigation was, uh, you know, the uh, alleged material support for terrorist organizations based on the fact that, you know, an organization that I co-founded years ago called the Palestine Solidarity Group had organized uh, mostly Midwest, but, you know, sometimes national delegations to, to Palestine. And, uh, you know, three and a half years later, there have been no charges, um, the, you know, and, and we've been demanding of, the, of the, uh, the federal prosecutors, U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, to close the investigation, to announce publicly that it's closed, and to publicly exonerate us, but they refuse to do so. Um, and, you know, essentially they're, they're going after us um, to, you know, to criminalize Palestine's support work. Uh, Twenty-three people were subpoenaed, uh, nine of them uh, clearly Palestinians or Palestine solidarity activists, the others who had done some international solidarity work around colombia and and had been prominent anti war activists in the community. We know from that case that there was a a police officer, probably an FBI agent who had uh, who had gone into the anti war committee of Minneapolis, had joined the group and was spying um, and you know essentially had been had been lying about uh, you know the activism in in that group, and the activism of of all of ours. And so, you know, a federal grand jury essentially is is just a you know a, a place where you know they they uh, they essentially establish a, a witch hunt and they try to get information about other activists, about other organizers, about you know people in our families and our and our social lives that are connected to this to this cause. We all the so twenty three of us refused to testify at the grand jury which is which is our right um, They could have come back and granted people immunity and forced them to testify, which um, we had all agreed if that had happened to any of us that none of us were going to testify anyway and it if that had happened, then we could have faced um we could have faced uh, civil contempt and been put in jail immediately for the life of the grand jury so you know there was uh, it was a very very challenging first few years of this investigation it's a lot a little less challenging now um most of the people who had been raided had all of their property returned within a year and a half um mine was the only home where the property was not returned until just recently a couple weeks ago US attorney called my attorney Michael Deutsch who is also the the lead attorney on the Rasmiya Oda case which we could also talk about for a few minutes, a few minutes if it's okay but Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. they called called Michael Deutsch and and told him that they were on, they wanted to return my property and he said well you know obviously this means that this thing is over and you all should should say that and, uh, you know, the uh, Barry Jonas, who was the lead investigator in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, told him all it means is that we're returning the property. So, you know, that's what we're dealing with. And that's what, you know, our activists and our organizers and our community in general and our institutions... More specifically, you know, have been dealing with for decades, not just post September 11th, yeah, but I was for gonna, decades I will, I was, yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was gonna, I was gonna point out that um, I think the most extreme case in recent memory that people might be familiar with is like with the Holy Land Foundation, uh, right? Right, where a group of people were are literally like spending years in prison for for having an, a charity organization that gave money to. Well, having a charity organization that gave money to charities in the Gaza Strip, but charities that the USAID actually funded as well. Um, but the point of it all is that, you know, Palestine solidarity activism is criminalized in many ways in this country um, in a way that I just want to really quickly, before we talk about Rasmia Ode, I, I just want to say, like, it's really interesting when if you juxtapose that with... Um, with the way that uh, Israel or pro-Israel organizations are treated, organizations that actually like fund uh, settlements in in like the West Bank that are illegal under international law, like there's actually groups in this country that you know make money or that you know collect money and send it over to Israel to commit war crimes, <laughs> like it, but that's like totally okay to do. Whereas this like pal- the solidarity activism that's really important um, is criminalized. So I think that's a, that's an interesting aspect that needs to be pointed out.
1: Um, yeah, but, absolutely.
2: But yeah, you wanted to you wanted to talk a little bit about Rasmiya Odeh. Why don't you Why don't you uh, for our listeners who don't know about her case, which is horrendous. Why don't you give them a little background?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Rasmiya Odeh is um, a 67 year old associate director of the Arab American Action Network in Chicago, the organization that I work for as well. And um, over 50, she's been an activist and an organizer really for almost 50 years. When she was 16 or 17, she, she started doing refugee support work, you know, really social services work, refugee resettlement work in, in Palestine um, and in Jordan and in Lebanon later on. Um, she's, uh, she's known really worldwide uh, in, the, in the Palestinian community as a, as a leader, of the of you know Palestinian um, women and the Palestinian community in general, uh, all of the places that she's worked and organized, um, she's she's been a leader and a, and a prominent one. And you know what? They arrested her in October of last year, and they charged her with what is called unlawful procurement of naturalization. They're alleging that she did not answer questions truthfully on her immigration, her naturalization. Application for citizenship ten years ago, so first of all the you know the the question the first question is you know why were you digging back into documents that are ten years old um, if you know this person is a prominent person she's the first Palestinian who was victimized by um, by rape and and sexual torture in Israeli prisons to to speak out publicly about it and she testified at the United Nations in 1979 when she got out of Israeli prison um, after 10 years. Her father, in fact, um, who was forced to watch as they sexually tortured her in 1969, was an American citizen at the time. And the, the U.S. ambassador to Israel knew about that case and had intervened on behalf of her American citizen father in, back in 1969. So there's no way that the U.S. can claim that they did not know that she was in prison, that they did not know that she was forced by vicious torture into confessing a crime that—confessing uh, to a crime that she did not commit. Mm. But they come back in 2013, you know, 10 years after— she had been granted citizenship in this country, and they're claiming that um, that she got it illegally. So, obviously, for us, there's a number of questions here. The first is, you know, you're going after her after 10 years. That's just a continuation and an escalation of the repression and the attacks and, as you mentioned, Vanya, the criminalization of Palestinians and their institutions and their leaders. The second thing is that, again— you know, this is this becomes a legal case in the United States that is going to have to address Israel and Israeli military courts and the Israeli prison system mm. and its treatment of political prisoners. In this case, most specifically, its treatment of female political prisoners and its, you know, decades-long use of torture, including sexual torture and rape. And, um, and these are the questions that, you know, we— are trying to, um, you know, promote publicly in the public sphere. And this is a great opportunity for us to do that with this great show of yours. And, you know, it's going to, we're, you know, we, we need to bring it out in, in court, because this is not about, you know, an alleged mistake uh, in answering a question on an application. This is all about Israel, and it's all about the special relationship that Israel has with the, with the United States and the impunity that Israel has in this country and really around the world that we're seeing now.
2: And uh, and and also I would, I would add, I would add an an alarming, um, a very alarming level of control and coordination. I guess coordination would be the more appropriate term, a level of coordination with the U S court system and with the U S police. And when I, and the court system, I mean, with, um, with Rasmia Ode's, uh case, I mean, she, the the judge in her case, is like this pro-Israel activist, right?
1: Right, um, right, absolutely. We've we've done some research and found out that he's a big donor to uh, Zionist organizations in Michigan. That he has uh, helped organize a number of delegations, including delegations that included, including delegations of legislators from Michigan. To Israel, um, he's a massive supporter of the of the of the Zionist state, and so we actually are. Our, our, her attorneys recently filed a motion um, asking him to recuse himself. He hasn't ruled on it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, he may rule on it very soon, uh, next week, actually July 31st in Detroit is going to be a status hearing and it's a very very important one in which we're mobilizing from chicago and from detroit and uh and all parts in between to fill that courtroom and uh, and uh and and rally outside in support of us because a number of these questions are going to be ruled on um in that courtroom the question of you know whether torture can be uh brought into the into the case, um, you know, whether the judge will recuse himself and a number of other like legal and political issues uh, that are revolving around it. So we're really hoping that people, um, you know, who are listening to this and, and others around the country um, can, if they can't get to Detroit on July 31st to the federal courthouse at 2 p.m. Eastern, that they will organize uh, support and solidarity solidarity rallies around around the country on that day. That's what we're calling for with the National Rasmia Defense Committee and the USPCN, and, and we're hoping that folks will, will take that call on. Well,
0: Hatem, thanks for being on our podcast. We're very glad that you were able to do this interview.
1: No, I, I really appreciate you reaching out, and, and Rania, I'm I'm glad I finally— got the opportunity to talk to you your your work is fantastic and we're really proud of you
2: oh thank you very much I appreciate that and I appreciate everything you all are doing I mean you all are the ones on the ground doing all the real work I just report on it so (laughs) 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 so thank you for that
1: (laughs) all right well good luck this thank you
2: Welcome back to Unauthorized Disclosure. Uh, So this is our discussion portion, and uh, I'm here with Kevin Gastola. And I know, Kevin, you wanted to um, highlight uh, a couple stories. Uh, So you mentioned something about the torture report. Uh, You want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, so uh, the the, the big uh, news that I guess is coming this weekend is that uh, John Brennan, uh, CIA Director John Brennan, has apparently... Uh, been involved in promoting or, or, or allowing within the agency this sort of counterattack to the report that's coming, in. and maybe it's faded off the radar so much that you forget. But you know, the Senate put together this thing, this this uh, six thousand three hundred page. Basically, it's a study. I mean, they're not criminally investigating anyone. Um, we've come to learn that, in fact part of doing this investigation was that nobody was going to be called out for uh, wrongdoing. So it wasn't going to be uh, this effort to hold people accountable, which, you know, so everyone's gotten away with the torture and, and they did this report and it's supposed to show what the CIA was doing uh, with torture and everything. And apparently uh, he has had these meetings, at least one meeting, it's written about by Mark Mazzetti in the New York Times with uh, Uh, George Tenet has been on speakerphone. Uh, He was a former CIA director. Um, They've had Jay Kofor Black, who headed the Counterterrorism Center after the September 11th attacks, Um, an undercover officer uh, whose identity is unknown because he works in this position now, and other officials in the clandestine service. And the clandestine service, uh, of course, was really, like, deep involved in uh, torture. And so uh, I guess the news is that uh, as the White House covers for the CIA, installs the declassification of this report, and uh, and we continue to wait for just even the, the summary, the executive summary, we're not going to get to see the whole entire report when it's released, um, what we're going to have happened when it is finally disclosed in August or September or, I don't know, next year, there will immediately be this CIA response that makes it impossible for the CIA to be caught off guard by – uh, the content. so they're going to have this prepared rebuttal, and it, I think it really does a, a disservice. I, it, I think all the senators involved, particularly Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, is is upset and is actually considering a way to just um, put it out himself without having to wait for the White House. And you know they've already done; they they can do what they need to do to prepare it for release. They don't need the White House, but it just looks better if all people are involved. But the Obama administration continues to cover for the CIA. Um, I wrote about this, um, and you can find more. We're not going to go into too much detail here on this podcast. But I'll just briefly mention that McClatchy has this really good report up about how um, a, an email was intercepted by the CIA that was a whistleblower communication, and it related to this. Um, apparently, uh, what happened is the CIA Inspector General David Buckley um, got his hands on a copy of an email to the person whose job it is. Uh, His name is Daniel Meyer. His job is to handle whistleblower cases. He sent an email to Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, and uh, it was about alleged uh, whistleblower retaliation. And it involved the delays by the CIA in paying um, people who had cooperated in the Senate Uh, committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee's study of torture. And uh, so, basically, uh, this is a huge deal, because uh, people uh, who who need to—who want to blow the whistle, uh, they, you know, they're having their confidentiality violated. Uh, The CIA has this insider threat program operating just as other Agencies, um, we may have mentioned it just a little bit on this podcast before, but it's something that I've covered a lot because of of my interest in writing about WikiLeaks and and whistleblowers and how the government, after Chelsea Manning uh, released all of the the documents that she did, what the government ended up doing is establishing this huge system uh, called the Insider Threat Program, which basically makes it more possible to go after federal employees who are revealing uh you know, fraud, waste, abuse, illegality to the media. It equates leaks to espionage, um, and it and it's it's a McCarthyist type system where it gets the federal employees and contractors within uh, agencies to keep looking over their shoulder for people who are are suspects. And if they don't turn in people who they think are suspicious, there's also a, a possibility that they could be penalized. Um, so so that's uh, just something. I wanted to mention, if you want to know more about that, you can find the report I put up at Fire Dog Lake on uh, Saturday. Uh, and then there is one thing uh, that we hadn't um, you know, planned to, to get to, but I want to work it in here just quickly because I think it's related to this and very important, and it's that Poland was actually held responsible this past week by uh, the European Court of, on Human Rights and the Abu Zubaydah, who— Uh, was uh, subjected to, um, you know, at least 83 times he was waterboarded by the CIA when he was held in a secret prison in Thailand, and then he was transferred to Poland, where he was held there and further subjected to abuse and torture and, I think, probably waterboarded some more. And um, Alan Shiri, uh, who uh, is this alleged uh, USS Cole bomber, uh, he— You know, was tortured in this secret facility in Poland as well. Um, When he was, after he was subject to CIA CIA rendition, he was brought to this facility in Poland, and the European Court of Human Rights decided to hold Poland responsible for their complicity and for their cooperation in a a program that uh, the court did not hesitate to point out, was violating the uh, torture convention, uh, the Convention Against Torture, and and that uh, by uh, allowing these people to be held on Polish territory, the Polish government was violating their rights by exposing them to torture and abuse. And then when these two men were subjected to CIA rendition again and brought to Guantanamo Bay, where they are both being held right now. Um, they violated their rights because they were put into a situation where they would risk a flagrant denial of justice, and the court was referring to the fact that they're going to be tried before military commissions proceedings. And so that is a big deal because uh, those are a sec- that's essentially a second-class legal justice system that we've established so that they don't come through our own federal court's to be tried. And so, and then the Polish government had also been covering for the CIA and not doing a proper investigation. And the Polish government faulted them for that. And the big thing is that though it's very minimal, I mean, you might say they should have gotten much more. Both of these men um, are getting uh, uh, at least a hundred thousand uh, uh, dollars, a hundred thousand euros in damages for the fact that. They were tortured and abused, and the Polish government did nothing about it. So it sends a message to uh, this government and other European governments um, to not uh, cooperate and be complicit in U.S. Uh, torture and war crimes, basically. Um, so uh, that that's that. Um, and then one more thing, and then we were going to do uh, just some updating on Gaza. You were going to give us an update on Gaza. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work in a mention of the Intercept story at uh that dealt with the blacklisting of people, how how people are labeled as terrorists. It's looked at the, the watch listing. Uh it's it's a really, really great report that Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Devereaux put together. Uh, you could tell there's a lot of work that went into it. Um, the watch listing guidance is very hard uh to read because it's there's so much vagueness and to it and there's a lot of loopholes and I went through it and and the things that stick out just generally is is that as we talked about last week on our previous episode with Deepa Kumar there's this anti-muslim racism that pervades much of our uh, national security state and you can read through this and see all the different ways that it allows for prejudice and and hunches and inferences that would probably be drawn from anti-muslim racism uh It it definitely enables people to be uh, put on lists uh, just for their religious beliefs. And, you know, in particular, one of the things is like if you're going, if you're traveling to uh, an area or region where there's a locus, they use the word locus of terrorist activity, and there's no known legal purpose for you doing that, that you might be placed on a list, and and that might seem innocent at first, but let's say you're going to study Islamic studies in Pakistan and you just go there and and you're you're uh, a muslim american uh well you might be put on the no fly list when you want to return home and in fact, there is an actual case that the a c l u has defended though know, those thirteen Americans that they uh court uh in uh oregon uh said was they all were uh, subjected to violations of their due process rights uh was the decision so uh the this watch listing guidance basically shows that there are many different ways that people can be put on this list if they aren't terrorists um there uh is no system right now for you to challenge your inclusion. And uh, so far, with the ACLU's work, people have been winning and convincing the courts that there should be some kind of a system. And this guidance that we uh, saw—the final point I'll make on this is just that it was secret because Eric Holder, Attorney General Eric Holder, claimed that it had uh, all the markings and everything to be a clear map for uh, the terrorist tracking system of America— which is sort of absurd uh, because if you look through the document, it doesn't contain any information on, on how exactly this information is being collected on these people. So I don't know where they're getting the data that's going in the this massive uh, terrorist uh, screening database that they have uh, that the FBI is involved in. And the National Counterterrorism Center, it, they're the ones with the guidance. That's what was leaked was the guidance from the National Counterterrorism Center. Uh, So this is another case where Holder inappropriately invoked what's called the state secrets privilege just so he could prevent the national security agencies from being scrutinized because he knew there were cases where people are challenging the no-fly list. And this sort of material would be helpful to those cases. Um, So that's... Basically, it. And, uh, and again, go to The Intercept, read the full story. Dead people can be put on uh, the watch lists um, and people who are dead will remain on these lists or can remain on these lists because apparently um, you will like this, Rania. Apparently, uh, this is a terrorist tactic to impersonate <laughs> dead people. Uh. And you might say to yourself, all right, perhaps these uh, these scheming terrorists probably do that. But then you know if you if you have the same name as a dead terror suspect and you are always traveling through the airports, uh, you're probably getting pulled aside quite a lot and if you're wondering why that's happening, it's because the government operates this inefficient and 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 rather malicious sort of system where it knows there are people in the database that aren't uh, who they're looking for, and they know these people are dead, but they leave them in there because hey. Let's say you decide to, to travel as, I don't know, Osama bin Laden again or, or whatever you're doing. It's like we'll have the flags go off and we'll pull you aside. So all yeah. right, so let's get to Gaza, and we'll we'll wrap up the show with an update on, on, on what's happening with Gaza. And I suppose you might even want to tell people what's happening with the West Bank too.
2: Oh, yeah, so um, the death toll in Gaza is above um, just past 1,000, and I think a lot of that is because um, – there's been this, like, ceasefire window, um, <clears throat> this, like, temporary truce that's been in place <clears throat> for the past several hours, and so people have had a chance to go into the neighborhoods that have been destroyed, specifically the Shigeya neighborhood, um, and there's been, they're basically, these neighborhoods um, have been shelled like nonstop endlessly for a week straight uh, with people in their homes. And so there's people who are buried underneath the rubble, but these neighborhoods have been reduced to absolute rubble. Um, And I'm just like looking at the pictures right now that people are, uh, people on the ground are tweeting. And I mean, it's just like, it looks like they, it looks like there was like an atomic bomb that was like dropped in these neighborhoods. It's, it's insane. There's like nothing left. Um, And um, you know, I would, I would add that the reason these neighborhoods were destroyed might've also been, they were neighborhoods more to the East Uh, of gaza uh that's which like that's closer to the border with israel um and there have been calls from high level israeli officials to reoccupy gaza um and to basically like ethnically cleanse uh, parts of gaza uh and even replace parts of gaza with jewish settlers again um so i don't know if the you know replacing them with settlers part will happen but there does seem to be just judging by the neighborhoods that have been destroyed uh this does this maybe could be a part of an effort to um to leave troops in here temporarily, or to leave troops in, here, troops in there permanently and reoccupy the eastern portion of Gaza uh, and expand what they call the buffer zone. Um, so that's happening. Um, and yeah, they've collected, I think I saw someone say 95 bodies have been collected from underneath the rubble. So these were bodies, these are people who were bleeding out and weren't allowed to be evacuated or died under the rubble within the last week. Um, and so, I mean, you could just think about how the horrible that must be to have, like, your loved one stuck underneath the rubble or even, like, dying from a gunshot wound. And, I mean, Israel wouldn't let... They were shooting on ambulances who tried to come in the neighborhoods. Uh, And so ambulances couldn't come and collect the wounded. So, yeah, there's just bodies strewn underneath the rubble. Um, And aside from that, I mean, it's basically just every single day the onslaught... Of this week, the onslaught um, became more aggressive. Uh, You know, we just heard more stories of yesterday or a couple days ago a U.N. shelter where... Where like hundreds, eight hundred people were, ta- eight hundred families were taking shelter, um, was shelled by Israeli uh, tanks, and um, and uh, I believe twenty people were killed and like a hundred injured or something. Uh, you know, it, 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 over twenty five uh, medical facilities have been um, hit by Israel or, or a few days ago, a hospital, um, the uh, uh, Alderta hospital was. Uh, Hit and the ICU uh, sustained serious damage, and a toddler who was recovering or being treated in the ICU was killed, um, and 30 people wounded. So Gaza's just—it's it's still a horror show. Um, the U.S. John Kerry has been going around saying he's trying to broker a ceasefire, but the U.S. ceasefire proposal that was uh, that you know w- w- that he attempted to to get the Israelis to agree to yesterday was. Um, Basically, it was a proposal calling for for one side to hold their fire, so Israel would still be able to destroy tunnels and uh, and destroy rocket sites. Uh, so basically, the proposal said Israel can continue like attacking and bombing, but the other side will stop. <laughs> uh, so that I don't understand how that's the you know any kind of truth or ceasefire proposal. But the but you know Netanyahu said uh, he rejected it because apparently that's still not enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Uh, and so right now, you know, there's this twelve hour window. Uh, where, you know, people like what they call the 12 hour humanitarian window that's ending in a few hours. Um, and so we'll see what happens after that. Uh, there's reports that Israel might want to continue to expand its ground invasion. It could be possible. I mean, I guess it could be possible. I mean, who knows a thousand people might not be enough dead. I don't know. Um, but one thing I really do, I do want to point out is that Throughout all of this, I mean, the media coverage has been different in that the media has been forced to cover the Palestinian side in a way that they never have been before. Um, So we're seeing a lot of the horror that's taking place in Gaza, but what's missing is context still. Uh, The media is completely overlooking and whitewashing, the mainstream media, completely overlooking and whitewashing the fact that Gaza, it's like they're portraying Gaza as some sort of aggressive, overly aggressive military operation. Um, And it is. It's a a very aggressive, it's a big, massive war crime. Um, That's true. But they're leaving out the the, the reason for it. Um, And the, like, incitement and the racism inside Israeli society that has, like, pushed for this and that supports this invasion uh, and that preceded this invasion and that's still ongoing. Um, You know, there's been calls for extermination from uh from you know public figures and and, and high level officials. Uh you know, there was one woman, um, an Israeli lawmaker who's like this rising star in the far-right Jewish home party uh in the Knesset. Uh, her name's Ayelet Sheket, and she uh like a couple weeks ago called for the um they basically called for genocide. Uh, openly, she said, you know, she called for the slaughtering of Palestinian mothers to prevent them from giving birth to little snakes and little snakes. Like that's a quote, little snakes. Um, you know, you've got like before the ground invasion began, um, you, uh, there was this, um, this uh top commander uh for the Israeli army, uh, Arby, o- his name is Ofer Winter, and he basically called for a Jewish holy war on Gaza. He like wrote this letter to troops calling for a Jewish holy war on like the blasphemous terrorist enemies of Gaza. Um, I mean this is the kind of language that's that's emanating from Israeli society. Uh and you don't hear about it. I mean, Moshe Faglin, the Knesset deputy speaker, uh part of that's like Likud government, um he basically said that, you know, he like wrote this op-ed. He it's like he wasn't even trying to shield, you know to, to hide it in English. He wrote an op-ed. It like appeared in English on this like nationalistic news site, uh this nationalistic Israeli news site. Um and uh saying that we you know that Israel needs to attack attack Gaza like even more mercilessly and expel the population and resettle the territory with Jews. Um and like and then you know, you've got this like the, these rabbis, this chief rabbi of this West Bank settlement, Kiryat Arba, uh, his name's Davlior. He uh issued this like religious edict ruling that um in times of war, uh it's it's permissible for uh, the nation to um, to bomb innocent Palestinian civilians and, quote-unquote, exterminate the enemy. Like, this is the kind of language that is in the mainstream of Israel. And you still have these mobs that are roaming through the streets shouting death to Arabs and now death to leftists because they're attacking anti-war rallies. There was an anti-war rally uh, of Jews and Arabs in Haifa. Um, a city in Israel, and the uh, anti, and the, in the, you know, these, these fascist protesters uh, were chanting death to Arabs, and they, they attacked, they attacked and brutally beat up the um, deputy mayor of Haifa and his son because they're Arab, um, and they were like on the sidewalk. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's happening in Gaza, and it's not getting any attention. Or I'm sorry, in, in Israel, it's not getting any attention. And the point is that that what's happening in Gaza. It's not this, you know, it's not, it's being framed as this, like, aggressive, overly aggressive attempt to, like, eradicate tunnels and to restrain rocket fire. But that's not at all what it's about. It's about, It's this is like an ongoing campaign of, you know, ethnic cleansing, of disp- dispossession. It's an ongoing campaign of Israeli settler colonialism um, that's taking place in all parts of Israel and Palestine, but Gaza just happens to be the most extreme version of the violence required to maintain the, you know, quote-unquote Jewish state uh, in an area that's inhabited by non-Jews. And so you mentioned the West Bank, Kevin, and yeah, over the past several days, uh, at least eight, it might be more now, but at least eight people in the West Bank have been shot dead by both Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers. Um, because in West Bank, these protests, these massive protests of tens of thousands, of like 10,000 people at least, have erupted um, with people just saying, enough is enough, like stop the slaughter in Gaza. And the Israeli military opened, Israeli soldiers opened fire and they've injured over 200 people um, with both lethal and non-lethal uh, weapons and yeah, they've shot people dead, and so it's like, that number is a big number, but because of Gaza, it's like, it doesn't, it seems almost, like, insignificant compared to the 1,000 people that have been killed in Gaza, but I would just point out that, like, these are not, this is like a, this is all, like, one big hate crime, like, you had this, you know, we talked about Mohammed Abu Qadir, the Palestinian teenager from the, uh, East Jerusalem neighborhood of Shwabit, who was killed, he was, uh, burned alive by Jewish, uh, vigilantes, uh, last month, and, uh, and that was like you know that that was incited by Israeli officials like they, for for the murder of three Israeli teens who they blamed on Hamas, but now there's you know they're admitting it it wasn't Hamas and they knew it they knew it wasn't Hamas. It was like a rogue cell of of, of you know Hamas people who had been like sort of rejected because of their violence. but the point is that you know this that you know we talked about high level incitement. Uh, that that preceded uh his lynching, and so what we 're seeing now is official it 's not vigilante like it 's not vigilante killings anymore this is like the official lynching of a thousand Palestinians in Gaza and of Palestinians in the west Bank by you know obama i 'm sorry obama wow by netanyahu 's by netanyahu's like personal <laughs> lynch mob which is the israeli army um and so like i would i and I, my point is is that this this is such an important aspect it's such a vital uh Uh, such a crucial element to understanding what's happening. And people are just, like, scratching their heads, like, confused. Like, why is it being destroyed? Like, why is Israel doing this? Israel's doing this because this is what's required uh, to be done to this population in order to, you know, crush any type of resistance to Israel's settler-colonialist enterprise. And I think that Ali Abunima put it best yesterday, this uh, piece he wrote for Electronic Intifada. He said what's happening in Gaza is the price of the Jewish state. And he's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, uh, the the op-ed that came out from the New York Times editorial board just proved once again how horrid they are at addressing what is really happening in Israel and in the Palestinian territories. Because there is absolutely no mention of the Gaza siege. Like they, it, it is as if, and and it's not unique to the New York Times. Uh, but because, the New York
2: Times is especially, especially terrible on this issue. They like, but these... it's
0: really bad. This, this, this editorial. It was titled "Gaza's mounting death toll," and it was notorious because another thing I think I want to highlight before we wrap up our episode here is is that you know in this op ed they also give equal weight to israeli military propaganda as other outlets were doing but it's exceptionally horrid because it, you had during that period after the, the the school was the the un-run school was bombed that uh there is no evidence there the the these officials are just going on tv and fabricating out of thin air they're drawing uh,
2: part, they, they have cartoon sketches on their side don't forget that
0: j- <laughs> but i mean it, it is it is pure unadulterated bullshit and yet it becomes you know and you're well you're so familiar with this you know it becomes well I suppose uh, Hamas was firing rockets nearby the school, and I suppose, you know, you negotiated to evacuate, but they didn't evacuate, so, you know, what can you do? I guess it's too bad that the civilians were shelled, or maybe you didn't shell them, maybe it was an errant shell. um... Five
2: five errant shells that accidentally landed in the same exact spot. (laughs)
0: Right. And then nobody even bothers to ask the key question except for Peter Boma at The Guardian, which is, you know, can you actually find Palestinian rocket debris around the school? No, the answer is no. The answer is still no. Wolf Blitzer, you can stop having Peter Lerner come on your show and 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 be the chief propagandist that he is. Um, and in fact, the last thing I'll close is um, is uh, one of the things that was. Remarkable to me is uh, this exchange that uh, happened to take place on a show uh, on Channel 4 News, um, and one of the the people who has has gained some notoriety. I don't. I'm curious to know your thoughts. You, you think he's be part of the problem, or if you think his heart's in the right place? But you know, John Snow ha- did this segment on Channel 4 News with this guy who I had not known before this offensive, maybe you did, um, but this guy, Yigal Palmor, who's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said this really awful thing, which I'm just going to repeat so I can give people uh, another glimpse at the depravity of these people. So when um, Palmore was confronted by this fact that, you know, if you know civilians are in this school, you shouldn't bomb them. Like, you know, they're there. It's, and you know that when you're going to shell them, they're going to die. Mm-hmm. So that's either the goal, to kill those civilians, or as you're making your public claims, you know, you have to address the fact that you went ahead and bombed when you knew civilians. Well, civ- they're,
2: yeah, they're framing it as, like, a hostage situation almost. Like, Hamas is holding them hostage or something. And it's like, if that's the, actually the case, which it's not, there's no proof it is, but if that was the case, then you're still committing a war crime by sh- by, like, killing all the hostages.
0: Right. Okay, so anyways... Palmore uh, decided to handle that by saying this, and you probably won't be surprised with how depraved this is, but it was shocking to me. What is happening in Gaza is not what immediately meets the eye. You should show Hamas spokesmen going on Hamas TV, which, by the way, I didn't know. Is that actually what it's called, Hamas TV? No,
2: it's not called. It's not like an affiliated station, but okay.
0: Whatever, okay. <laughs> and saying how they will distribute hand grenades to children and send them to fight Israelis. There are many other such occurrences where Hamas specifically states that they will use children to fight Israelis. They are taking the battlefield into civilian populated areas. This is why the level of civilian casualties is high. But be that as it may, we believe that that within the number of casualties, the majority have been armed gunmen by Hamas.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's like completely... Okay, I mean, even Israel admits that like seventy, at least 70% of the casualties are civilians. And I mean, Israel doesn't usually admit... Usually for Israel, everyone's a fighter.
0: So, um, just in all fairness to Jon Snow, he did call bullshit and say, let's have an interview here, not a lecture, and wanted him to address the fact that he was killing mothers and fathers and yada, 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 and that he knew children were going to be killed. So, but anyways that's just a flavor and i don't know. Ron, do you have any closing thoughts before we end this week
2: um just that you know i really you know i, I don't know if my computer's gonna make it through the next week if this invasion continues because the media makes me so mad i
0: don't
2: i, don't, I might break it
0: throw it out a window
2: <laughs> possibly it's possible um anyways but yeah i guess i'm i'm good uh i guess we will thank you for listening and we will be back next week